To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars on his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they're not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, as conservative and confessional Presbyterians who read the Westminster Standards, I think we know this morning what a Presbyterian church is supposed to look like, or at least as we read those, we imagine to ourselves we know what they must have looked like. Certain things will come to our mind. Sound in doctrine, with a capital D, Worshipping according to the regular the principle, just exactly as the Bible commands. Catechizing. Faithful in church discipline. And very obviously committed to Presbyterian church government. Not hard for us to imagine what the Presbyterian church was supposed to look like, and perhaps even once looked like. Because reading through the Westminster Standard, it's very clear what the historic Presbyterians considered to be a true church and what it was supposed to look like. In fact, when we think about that kind of church this morning, we might even think to ourselves, I wish I could be a part of a church like that. You see, as confessional Presbyterians, we know that the church is supposed to be sound in doctrine, sound in worship, and could care less about being trendy. Now, if you take all of those things, which all of us would agree, this is what a Presbyterian church would look like, and you, you walk down memory lane and back into history with me to the end of the first century, and you feast your eyes upon the church at Ephesus, I think one of the things that we would say is that was a Presbyterian church if there ever was one. The description of our text shows it. They had all the marks of doctrinal purity. Verse 2, we learned that the church had a nose like a hunting dog that could sniff out false apostles like nobody's business. And they refused to compromise with them doctrinally or morally. This church persevered firm in its conviction two different times here in our text. In verse 2 and verse 3, Jesus Christ highlights their own perseverance. There was within this church a dogged determination and commitment 
to purity and soundness of doctrine. In fact, so much so that Jesus Christ can say with them, I share something that you hate too. I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And have noticed you did too. You see, in every measure as you read over the description here, of Christ's own description, by the way, of the Ephesian church, it is apparently commendable. Diligent, hard-working, spiritual, sound in faith, morally pure, and doctrinally sound. If there was ever a model of confessional Presbyterian orthodoxy, the Ephesian church was it. And yet Jesus Christ said, I have a bone to pick with you. He threatened to remove its very existence. As we see in verse 5, repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you. You see, what is so shocking about Christ's own warning, Christ's own admonition, is that Jesus Christ picks on precisely this church with all of its soundness, with all of its true worship, with all of its commitment to Jesus Christ. And he said, I'd rather there be no church in Ephesus than to have you there. That's very shocking to our Presbyterian ears. But you see, what Christ found so offensive, church that attempted to be so pure doctrinally and morally and in worship and government was that they did all of it without regard to Christ and for Him. You see, they thought they could be pleasing to God if they dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's, and yet Jesus Christ and His love wasn't in it. And so Christ, being a faithful shepherd of the churches, well, He comes to them not just with complaint, but with the most severe and sobering warning. I'm coming, and if you don't repent, I'm taking away your lamp. The main point of our text this morning as we think about what Christ says here to the Ephesian churches is that doctrinal orthodoxy without fervent love for Christ is offensive to God. Doctrinal orthodoxy without fervent love for Christ is offensive to God. And our Presbyterian ears need to hear that. Three things that we're going to think about here as we look at our text. Affirmation, exhortation, motivation. Let's think about affirmation. I'm going to think for a moment about the church that is affirmed here. And by the way, Jesus Christ is clearly affirming things in this church. And the church whom He writes to is the Ephesian church that may be veiled just to And it says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, I'm writing... We know from chapter 1 that the angel is the pastor, so there's no confusion there. And he's writing to the angel, likely because it would be the pastor of the church who received the letter and read it within the congregation. But just to make sure this morning that this letter is indeed to the Ephesian church, and, and even to us this morning, is what the Spirit says at the end of verse 7. To him who overcomes, or rather it says, what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, it's very clear here in the testimony of the Spirit of God that this letter is not just for the church at Ephesus, it is to the churches. 
But I think it's important for us to become specific for a moment, to think about some of the things that are in the backdrop of the Ephesian church, because I think that will help us tie in the message to this particular congregation, give us some sense of what's going on here. And there's just a couple of things I would think of by way of backdrop, and one is features and the other is founding. One of them is features, and perhaps one of the features of uh, the Ephesian church and the Ephesian context is wealth, great wealth. It was a materialistic city, and the reason, because, well, it won the lottery, geographically speaking. It was a lot like Southern California. It had natural harbors that every ship of every size could sail into, and it was situated at the mouth of the sea. A river came down that flowed upstream into the interior regions, and all of those regions were connected to the city of Ephesus by a series of well-developed and highly maintained roads. All of this meant that Ephesus was an economic powerhouse due to trade. One of the wealthiest cities of antiquity. And that leads to the second feature about this city that is noteworthy, and it's um, what's inseparably connected to its wealth, which was its temple. You see, uh, the city of Ephesus was the site or the home of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and that was the temple of Diana. And it was absolutely spectacular as a piece of architecture. It was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, and 60 feet massive columns held this gigantic temple up so you could see it wherever you were within the city. It was enormous. And it was the pride of Ephesus. It was also the problem of Ephesus. Because you see, Artemis... um, was considered a virgin god, but don't be confused. That simply meant she wasn't married. And the cult of Diana or Artemis was a morally impure and corrupt form of worship. In fact, it was so vile and so corrupt and so impure that even a secular philosopher named Heraclitus of Ephesus prophesied against it saying, against night roamers, magicians, bacchanals, revelers in wine, and the initiated, judgment will come. It was a city that had the moral filth of this false religion spilling out into the very streets of the town. Its wealth led to, in part, its promiscuity and its gross moral impurity and corruption. That's Ephesus. That's where this church was. So that's an important feature to understand about this church. And yet, this church stands out from the culture. I think that's something very important, and likely because of its founding. That's the second thing I'd say about this church. If, if there was a church that was privileged, perhaps above the rest of the churches of antiquity, it would have been the church of Ephesus. It was sort of founded by the Apostle Paul very end of his second missionary journey in Acts 18, he stopped in, preached the gospel in the synagogue, got a great response, and so he left behind Priscilla and Aquila. Because he had to go into Jerusalem. And while they were there and he was away, they preached and ministered, and then this man named Apollos, who the scriptures say was mighty, in the scriptures, he came and, and preached the word of God. And it's very evident by the next time the Apostle Paul gets there, 
in Ephesians 19 that a thriving congregation exists. And then the Apostle Paul spent three years there holding seminary. Really, literally a seminary. In the school of Tyrannus, every single day, he taught and he preached, and it was so effectual. The Apostle said that the word scattered all throughout Asia. And, and the way you can measure or monitor the, the effect of the preaching teaching of the Word of God is that the, the silversmith business went bankrupt because so many people were turning away from Diana, Artemis, and idolatry to the living God in Christ that the very business of the silversmiths dried up. Their entire living was about making little tiny idolatrous figurines of this false god. And the word was so powerful as it went forth that people turned to Christ and turned away from idolatry. It really changed the city. After Paul left, Timothy was left behind to pastor there for an extended stint of time. And then the Apostle John, from the best we understand of the historical documents, spent basically 30 years pastoring this church. So, so on every metric, as you would look upon the Ephesian congregation, they were blessed with the best of apostolic ministry and teaching. And that's quite likely why they were so profoundly doctrinal, so squared away. You see, so Jesus Christ comes to this church, and I just simply want you to notice the one who is affirming this congregation. We're told here in verse 1, he's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We think about that language, our minds go right back to the end of chapter 1. We saw the very same language in chapter 1 as, as John described the appearance of Christ in His glory. We don't want to pick through everything there, but there was so much there that John used to highlight the authority of Christ. How about the double-edged sword coming straight out of His mouth in a voice which was like many waters? It's that same powerful, sovereign, glorious Christ who testifies He's been walking in the lampstands. In other words, He's been right in the midst of the congregation of Ephesus. And He's going to give them a report card. Here at the end of the apostolic era, Jesus Christ comes to this church and He gives it a report card based upon His sovereignty and His omniscience. And he says, there's a lot to be liked here. I want you to notice three spiritual qualities that Christ isolates here. Three things. Number one, spiritual qualities. He says, these are known. I know these. Perfect tense verb. And uh, what he speaks of here, first of all, in verse 2, is service to Christ. He speaks of deeds and toil and perseverance. And the thing of it is, deeds are, are Christian. So it would be things which are moral, things which are prescribed by the law of God. They were devoted to them. And the verb that he used here to say in verse 2, their toil, which means to labor to the point of exhaustion. So it's not just that they did some works. The thought here of Christ and the manner of description is to say they exhausted themselves. They were sold out for Christ and His service. And it's not just that they did that here or there, the fact that he says they persevered in it speaks of a doggedness and a determination. It wasn't intermittent. It wasn't sporadic. This was something that 
stamped upon who they are. These spiritual qualities, they were sold out to serve Christ. The other thing here we speak of is spiritual warfare. And uh, Christ speaks, I would say, in the grandest of terms about them. Notice he says, you cannot tolerate evil men. That sounds pretty good, right? And uh, the evidence of it is, you put to test those who call themselves apostles and who are really not. I wonder here if the language reflects <coughs> what we read of in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, where, where John talks about testing the spirits. For they're not all from God. And one of the things here that is suggested is that uh, that's exactly what they did. They had been so attuned, spiritually speaking, to the hearing of an apostolic voice in Paul and in John, that they were quite able to sniff out false apostles who came saying, I've got a message from Christ, or, or the Spirit of God just moved me, and I've got this apostolic message for you. They were so well attuned to hearing Christ through his apostles that they put him to the test and they showed them to be false. And so here you have this great testimony of the church that they flushed out the false teachers and the false prophets. And the reason they did it is because they loved the truth. They loved the truth. They loved the church. And they wanted to protect it. And so all this speaks to us saying that they were discerning. They were wise. They were not gullible. They were not compromisers. They wanted a church that was, according to Scripture, 16 ounces to the pound. That's good. Notice their spiritual strength here. That's the third quality that Christ commends in verse 3. You have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. This speaks of the greatest kind of de devotion and determination. And, and the fact is it says, they endured it for my name's sake. That ties back into what we said about this culture being so full of moral degradation because of the false worship of Diana. They were persevering in the faith and in the truth for the sake of Christ's name, which means they wanted to lift high the name of Christ. So that the name of Christ and, and the glory of Christ would, would stand out over against Diana and false religion so that the people of Ephesus would know this is a false god. Christ alone is true. As we look at the affirmation here, I think we can pause to say that Christ commends great things for this church. Spiritual quality, spiritual warfare, and spiritual strength. If you want to know this morning what Jesus Christ wants from every church, it's right here. What Christ wants for His church is to overflow with spiritual qualities, devotion and commitment and perseverance in the things of the Lord. What Jesus Christ wants for His church is a discerning church that tests the spirits to see where they be of God. To evaluate those who would come in the name of Christ and speaking things uh, from their own authority and from their heart, what Christ would want is for His church to be discerning and wise and to put to test anybody that brought false doctrine to the church and expose it for what it is. Christ is not shy about us debating in church. He's not. We could all use a little bit of relaxing. Everybody's always talking about how much they're fighting in the church. I don't see any fighting in the church anymore. In fact, it seems to me the fight is out of the church now. Everything is tolerated. 
just as long as we're nice to each other, anything will go. And that's in That wasn't Ephesus. They were committed. They contended earnestly for the faith. Jesus Christ commends his church, persevering in things for the glory of his name. If we want to know what Christ commends so we can seek to apply it here, this is it. Spiritual quality, spiritual warfare, and spiritual commitment to Christ. So as you look at all this, it appears the Ephesian church was a spiritually vibrant church, committed to Jesus, devoted in sound doctrine, sincere in upholding His glory. So what's the problem? Well, we come down to the exhortation and we see the charge. And it's in verse 4, and it is utterly shocking. But I have this against you. You've left your first love. I've got to say, this... Um, is big enough to stub your toe over when you're reading it because, wow, it's so unexpected. It's so jarring. It feels like Jesus is on a roll in verses 2 through 3. I mean, he's unfolding some goodness here, isn't he? And then it's so jarring to read that conjunction, but. And it's sharp and it's designed to. To be a, a glass of cold water in the face, as it were. Because in spite of everything good that Christ has said about the church, He comes to them with an unwavering, unmitigated charge. And the charge is, you left your first love. You left it behind. Well, that's, uh, that's pretty sobering. Now, the... Uh, the all-important question is, what does it mean? One commentator that I read uh, threw up his hands and says, it's no longer clear to us what is meant. <laughs> I wish we could answer all the hard questions in the Bible that way and just go on about a business. Uh-uh. There are three main options that have endured over time. And there's a sense in which they may be a little bit overlapping. I'm just going to cover three of the most obvious ones that keep coming up. And the first is, uh, the love that they left was brotherly love. Now, you can just imagine in our very politically sensitive times that when you hear about this church that was testing every spirit and seemed a little testy, maybe. They didn't tolerate evil. They hated the Nicolaitans' works, remember? That there's a whole class of commentators say, it's only inevitable, it's only a matter of time that when you have a, a hypersensitive, doctrinally sound church, that what's going to happen is the saints are going to begin to turn on each other. And instead of having devotion towards one another and brotherly kindness, all of the debating and obsessing about the purity of doctrine is going to lead to a church that begins to uh, turn inward and on each other. So there's those who say the issue here is brotherly love, how they treated one another. There are those who say evangelistic fervor is the issue here. There is a line of thought that says that what they did was being evangelistic. There is the implication that they once were, and there is the thought that they are not now. Where does that idea come from? It comes from the removal, the threat to remove the lampstand, and there would be those who would tie it back to 
uh, Christ in Matthew 5, where he speaks about the calling of the, of the church, which is to, to hang the light of the gospel on this and hold it high. And so now they are being, um, instead of a, a refuge for lost sinners, so what they've done is carved out a gigantic doctrinal mountain. Well, then there's those who say, this is about love for Christ. There are those who say this is about love for Christ. It has been replaced by the formalities committed in doctrine of worship. If it helps you at all, Matthew and Matthew Henry very much affirm this. In fact, through a lot of old leaders, virtually all of them hold this. Um, I think they're on track. One of the things that makes me think this is on track is how it contrasts with the statement of the Apostle Paul when he says in 2 Corinthians 5.14 the love of Christ controls us. That is not said here about the Ephesians. Doctrinal of his commitment to Presbyterian and all of his commitment to the purity of worship says this about everything he did as an Apostle. Love of Christ controls. And that verb there is made of two words that means hold and together. So what the Apostle is saying, what held everything together for him, and all that he did was this driving motive and concern, love of Christ. And so the admonition here that Christ gives the church is, what happened to that love? What happened to your first love? What happened to your first commitment? You see, it seems as if first love, first commitment to Jesus Christ, that thing that holds everything together, has been replaced by and given way to soundness and orthodoxy and practice. But it's that idea of the firstness that continues in my mind to support the third as the option. And by the way, if you're thinking about your options, brotherly love or evangelistic fervor, evangelistic fervor that doesn't love Jesus Christ, and show me a church that's got great love that doesn't have love for Christ. It's not possible. This is the root from which everything flows. When you think about first love, you ask yourself the question, have you ever met a Christian who said, you know, I became a Christian because of Presbyterian church government. I just love the idea of presbyteries and synods and general assemblies and that stopped my heart. What I've heard over the course of over 20 years in the ministry of listening to people's testimony is my life was a wreck. I had spent everything that I had. It was lost in my sins. I'd ruined my life. I'd destroyed my relationships. I had nowhere else to go and nowhere to turn. The gospel of Jesus Christ came to me like a lightning bolt when the promise of the gospel said that all of your sins will be washed away as white as wool. 
that all of those sins and that vast record of deal, of debt and guilt, it's all washed away. You see, what people talk about is the cross of Jesus Christ and, and the hope of the gospel and how that just gripped them. I've never heard anybody said, boy, it was, it was some of those doctrines I just can't get enough of. I, I, they just wouldn't let me go. It's fine that when you're a believer you love them, but it was the love of Christ. It was the love of the cross. It was the love of mercy. Listen to Robert Murray McShane, that great Scottish preacher of the 19th century. Do you know what it is to have been in an agony when awakened by God to have seen your corruptions? And do you remember what you felt when you first saw a crucified Christ? This was the first love. And this is the love that you've left. You see... uh, The new convert has passions. And those passions are for Christ. You can tell a lot about a person by examining their passions. I was thinking about this. You could go into the garage, and I'm picking on men. I mean, there's other ways to do this, but I'm picking on men. You can go into a garage and tell what a man's passions used to be. There's a golf bag covered over with cobwebs. There's camping gear that hasn't been taken off the shelf and used in years. There's an old motorcycle pushed up against the wall that's leaking oil and hasn't been used in forever. And each one of those things and more represent an old passion. An old passion, when they first had him, was like a little kid on his birthday unwrapping his presents and had unmitigated joy in them, only to discover after a while that they were going to go on to something else. You see, a series of passions, one has been replaced by the other. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, you've lost your first love, remember from where you fell. Remember what it was like. You see, what is cloaked or concealed or at least implied here in the force of the exhortation is Jesus is saying, this is to be your passion. It's not a replaceable one. And somehow, in the pursuit of being good Presbyterians, they left Christ the love of Christ and the love of the gospel as if it was a sort of spiritual entree that was to be passed up on for greater doctrinal delicacies. Jesus says this is offensive. So look at the command. Jesus says very clearly to that person, remember from where you have fallen, repent, and do the deeds you did at first. You see, the beginning of the spiritual recovery process is planted in the word, therefore. Here is the diagnosis, Jesus says. The problem with the Ephesian church is that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember. Remember. 
The first step to spiritual recovery is to remember. I could ask any married person in this room, and I will guarantee you, they will easily be able to remember their spouse and what it felt like to first be in love. To just think about that question, I bet you many minds are just zoning out into thought bubble land right now because memory lane floods the mind. No married person will have to struggle. Who could forget this when it comes to the Christian life? Who could forget about being overwhelmed by grace? Who could ever forget that moment when you realized the love of God in Christ was for you? Who could ever forget that moment when you realized that all of your failings and all of the deeds that you did, which were dark and corrupt, were washed with the blood of Christ? Who could ever forget what it felt like when all of a sudden everything felt new? Your attitudes had changed. Your desires had changed. You were different. And you knew it was because of Jesus Christ. I know people tell me that they've grown up in the church. And praise God for this, they don't ever remember a day in which they were not saved. And I pray that for every child that grows up within the church. I pray that for every single child that grows up within the church. I hope that's their experience. But believe me, that person too ought to have a a recollection of knowing what it was like to have failed miserably. And to know their sins and to know all of its shame and that impulse to cover it up and to to hide it and then realizing they couldn't they had to take it to to the throne of grace and ask God uh, for forgiveness and to agonize in confession and then knew the joy you see it doesn't matter whether you grew up and always knew you're saved or you grew up in the church you got saved older like I did The fact of it is all of us know and we remember the experience of knowing grace of God in Christ. And if you didn't, there's nothing to remember. Your problem isn't that you lost your first love. Your problem is you never had it. And if you never had it, don't don't worry about the rest. Just stop right now and go to Christ. But Jesus presumes there was something that really happened here. And he says to that person, remember, you can't go on to the next step unless you do this. Remember. He says, when you've called to mind that great joy, that great thrill of the hope of the Gospel, then he said, repent. And the heart of this word repent is the U-turn. You're going along down the road of life making a beeline for a target ahead of you and, uh, and the idea of repentance is the violence of a U-turn. A 180 degree turn to go exactly the opposite direction. That's what Jesus is saying. You're going down the road of thinking that you 
can just fake being a Christian by being concerned about your doctrinal orthodoxy. You're playing church. You're playing Christianity. And you need to realize it is offensive to Jesus Christ. He says, repent. The joy of the Christian life is not bound up in loving doctrine more than you love Christ. Change your attitude. Change your thoughts. Change your actions. Repent. Say before the Lord, you gave me a new heart and I turned it into an egghead. It's not okay. It's not okay. Christ says it's not okay. You must repent. And then he goes on to say, return. Step three is return. Remember, repent, and return. That is, go back to what you first did. What do you first do when you're a believer? You wake up every morning and you say, thank God for your mercies. What do you do when you're growing older as a believer? You wake up in the morning and you say, thank God for your mercies. And what do you do when you're an older believer? You wake up and you say, thank God for your mercies. If you're not doing that, you're on the wrong track. I'm sorry to say it, there's a lot of Christians that happens to. Whether because you got caught up in the things of life, you got caught up in raising a family, you got caught up in your career, you got caught up in your recreation, you got caught up in something. But it can happen, it happens a lot. That Christians who are maturing and older and know better than to do it get caught up in this. And they stop waking up in the morning and they stop remembering the mercies of the Lord are new. Every morning because of the faithfulness of God. They become to have a sense of entitlement that everything should be going good for them because after all, look at all of my acts of devotion to Christ. You don't do that when you're a believer. When you first come to Jesus Christ, you wake up and you say, thank God for your mercies. I was lost and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was distraught, now I have hope. I was broken, but I'm made whole. Those were the first deeds. Those are the things we're never supposed to get over. You're bored with this, but I always tell people the Christian life is like a dog chasing its tail. You wake up and you know your sins and you run to the cross of Jesus Christ and you thank God for mercies because of the blood. And then you go seek to serve Him. While you seek to serve Him, you fail. You remind yourself of your sins. You run to the cross of Jesus Christ. You become thankful for saving grace and the cross mercies. And you go seek to serve the Lord. And when you see the Lord, you begin to fail. And you see your sins. You run to the cross. You get the drill. There's progress in it. I'm not saying there isn't, but I was sharing this with a, a man the other day who was going very distressed in the Christian life because I just don't feel like I'm making any progress. And I said, well, what do you mean? And one of the things he confided was he just didn't have any joy in the gospel. You know why someone doesn't have joy in the gospel? It's because they failed to be honest with themselves about their sin. You will enjoy the gospel every growing moment of your Christian life as long as you remember your sin. 
the minute you stop thinking about your sins and your failings is the minute you will have because you have on your own shoulders and you have traded grace for works. People of God hear me. Jesus Christ is pleading through me to you this morning to remember that the most important ought to be for you joy in the Lord Jesus Christ, thankfulness for heaven's mercies every day. And if that's not the first thing on your schedule, on your priority list, you better get a day planner and a notifier to wake you up every morning to say, remember to thank God for mercies today. I don't deserve one of them. The path forward in the Christian life follows the cross of Jesus Christ. The road to recovery here is very simple according to Jesus Christ. But oddly, it works kind of like muscle memory. You know what muscle memory is? It's the idea that you repeat an action so many times that you can do it without thinking about it. And that's where we got the old expression in English. It's like riding your bike. Because all of us learn to ride our bike that way, right? Whether it was our mom or our dad or our sister or brother. They kept helping us get up. Remember those skinned up knees and the back teen and the band-aids you put on because you always crashed? Well, they took that bike and they went with you and they said start pedaling and they ran beside you. And then before you knew it, they had let go and you were pedaling all on your own. Hopefully you learned how to use the brakes. But you learned how to use the pedals. It doesn't matter whether you remember when you're seven, you won't forget it when you're 70. You'll know how to ride a bike. Muscle memory. This is precisely what Jesus is saying in a spiritual way. Here he's saying, back to the first works. Go back to the things that you know are most true about the Christian life, and the thing which is at the foundation of it is gratitude. Gratitude. For Christ's cross and mercies. Here's the very sobering part of our text now. We have the warning. We had the charge, the command. Look at the warning. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. I'm coming to you. And remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. I don't know what's more terrifying. You know, your mama used to tell you, I keep doing that, but wait till your dad gets home. This is a lot worse. Jesus Christ says, I'm coming. And it's not for a social call. It's not to sit down across the table from you and ask you about how things are going. No, to see that I am coming shortly is so full of alarm that anybody in their right mind who senses the great weight and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, with the sharp sword coming out of His mouth, whose voice is like that of many waters, thundering as He comes and speaking to His church, if that doesn't terrify you, there's a problem spiritually. For a purpose, and that purpose is to remove your lampstand. 
Now here's what's shocking. Jesus Christ says this to the Ephesian Reformed Presbyterian Church. All their doctrine was right. Their worship was right. Their government was right. Their practice was right. And Jesus said, I'd rather have no church in Ephesus than to have you. That ought to bring tears to our eyes. I would rather have no church in Ephesus than to have you. And you say this morning, Lord, who's going to testify against the Diana of our age? Who is going to testify against all of the corruption and the evil and the filth? And Jesus Christ says, I don't care. I don't need you if you're not going to honor me and put me as the priority in your life, in your heart, and in your church. Jesus is not getting rid of a liberal church. He's not getting rid of a tolerant church. He's not threatening a compromised church or a sinker-sensitive church or a church with a big rock band and a cool pastor and a parking lot full of cars and a big building, cultural... No, Jesus is coming to a church that's sound in every way and He says, because you have parted from your first love, I'm taking you out. And that's the first letter to the seven churches. I'm grateful for what's around the brackets here, though. Unless you repent. Unless you repent. And i got to believe that the brackets here tell the story. I, I so hope that this is the case, and I believe it to be true based upon the very structure of the text that Jesus is saying, if you repent, unless you repent, I believe what this is saying is there's got to be a reason for why you love the truth. Christ isn't exhorting the church because he's angry they love the truth. The fact that they love the truth is indicative of the fact that they've had a spiritual experience of grace. The issue is the priorities and what's been misplaced and how Christ hasn't been exalted in it. I think there's encouragement here also in verse 6 where Jesus, uh, after he talks about the unless part, says it. And by the way, I'm going to commend you again. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. <laughs> These rascals I have, we're going to study them some more. But he says, you hate it and I hate it. We're on the same team. I'm crying out to you, Repent. All right, well, we don't have much time, so let's go to motivation. We saw affirmation, exhortation, and motivation now. Verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Each one of these letters has this portion. Him who has an ear, 
this is the person who has spiritual ears. This is the person who, uh, who, who uh, is hearing the admonitions, who has been humbled by the word and says, okay, all right, I know my sins. I, I, I see my Christian sins and my failings, and I know they're offensive. The person who's remembered, the person who's repented, and the person who's heard. Jesus is talking about one. He gives us great, powerful, motivating word of encouragement. The great promise to him overcomes. I'll grant you to eat the tree of life in the paradise of God. The conqueror here is the repentant Christian. The conqueror here is the repentant Christian. And Jesus says to the one who keeps seeking to overcome their sins with the cross. There's a great promise. Talked about that temple of Diana. Scholars tell us, having done excavations of this temple, that somewhere in the midst of this massive structure, there was a garden. And in the midst of that garden was a single tree. And it was to that tree where the people went who wanted something from Diana. The felons would go there for refuge. By the way, I forgot to tell you that the Temple of Diana was a place of refuge for felons. If, if they had committed a great crime, as long as they could make it to the temple precincts in time, before they were caught by anybody, they could stay there. And so the temple literally became a den of thieves and thugs and murderers. But as long as they made it to that tree, they received, not pardon, but they would not, they would not be dragged out. Everybody in Ephesus knew about it. These people knew about it. And Jesus looks at that as the parody tree, the fake tree, the vain tree, the empty tree, the fool's tree, the idol's tree. Jesus says, I and it's in the paradise of God, and it's the tree of life. We find this tree again in Revelation chapter 22, verse 2. On either side of the river, there was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. See, the great promise to those who will humble themselves this morning and hear this admonition of Jesus Christ, when He says, but I have something against you is to say, okay, Lord. I need to wake up and remember new mercies. I need to put the love of Christ first in my life. That needs to be what holds me together. To that person, Jesus Christ says to the one who humbles himself and repents and seeks to restore Christ to the rightful throne of priority in their life and in the church. He says, I've got a tree for you. And it's the tree of healing. It's Christ's tree. You know, the word in the Greek here for tree is not dendron. That's the typical word for tree. The word for tree here is zulon, wood. 
it's the very word that Paul uses to speak of the cross of Christ. The tree of curse. Well, it's a, a tree that's been made a tree of grace because of Christ consecrating it with his death. And so what he holds out to the believer is every single satisfying grace that heals and restores and saves the soul. That's what's for the person who hears, who remembers, and who returns. When I set out to build doll saints and planets so many years ago, I had a few things that I was aiming at. Confessionally Reformed Church, a church that honored the regular principle of worship and followed it in practice. A church that was means of grace oriented, weekly communion. A church uh, that had uh, sound government. As I read this text and wrestled with it all week, I said, who cares what I aimed at? What is Christ they not? I don't believe that Jesus is seeking to denigrate doctrinal soundness. In fact, I think he's amplifying it here. That's the starting point. That must be there. That is essential. The fact that he says, you hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and I do too, is enough of a word of affirmation to say, this must be there. But Jesus is also saying, you can have all of that, and failed to have the love of Christ as the priority, and you miss the aim of Jesus Christ for the church. And so, people of God, these words challenge us. We can have the right doctrine, the right government, the right worship, the right practices, every I dotted, every T crossed, but if the love of Christ is not our priority... We are an offense to Jesus Christ. So the first word from the first letter to the first church for us this morning is, let's have ears. And let us constantly hear what the Spirit says for the sake of the church now and in the future. Remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds which you did at first.